Daniel is a professor of computer science at the University of Victoria, and his research interests are software engineering and empirical software engineering, and he's looked a lot at software evolution, open source software development, and also at intellectual property and software licenses. And he works a lot in open source and uh, also with the Linux Foundation, and in particular with the Chaos uh, Project, which is looking at uh, Project Health. And um, he's uh, done a lot of work on code review, and the paper that uh, he and I discussed that you could read today is about uh, fairness in code review and also perhaps how that fairness can apply to paper review and software engineering research. And um, I should say that if you want to learn more about the kinds of research that Daniel does, you should look at his DBLP. He has a lot of uh, breath uh, in the papers that he's written. And I think that's the, the main way that you can do it. He's also a very humble person, so he's done a ton of research. Um, so he'll perhaps allude to some of that as we go through your questions today. Um, and to get going, um, I thought, you know, I'll go to the student questions and invite them and uh, all of you remember to watch the Google Doc that has those questions and also the Zoom chat. Um, but as a warm up question, uh, Daniel, I was wondering what you thought of the idea and maybe this is something that I could ask Yatsik about as well. The idea of asking some of those questions at some phase during code review about, you know, does this software promote human values? Does it amplify positive behavior? What would you what would you think about that? I think a lot when I hear um, all of these ethical issues, and I think that um, we each one of us when we hear about it, think of it differently because we all have different backgrounds, and I think that this is even stronger in Canada, right? And here at UVic, we have people from many, many different uh, uh, countries of origin, many different uh, religions, many different cultures. And, um, and the interesting thing about ethics and, uh, is that at the end is, is, is relativistic. And uh, it's whatever our system of values accepts as uh, the desirable uh, goal. Now, this is where the law also intervenes and the law says this, this is the minimum that we have to do as society. And I find these struggles particularly interesting. So um, Canada is relatively tame in these actions, but think in terms of France with what happened with the uh, cartoons of the prophet. So France is a country that puts freedom of expression at the highest, even at the higher as, as, as this implies, than the freedom of religion. And to which extent can a religion impose restrictions on people of other religions? I think that that's the interesting question in this case. But the country seems to be behind that these ideas are fundamental. And even though it's creating a huge stress in the country, the government is still believing that it should move forward. Whether society agrees with that or not, that's a different story, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what happens in, in, in the United States, the last decision, the, uh, the, the decision with respect to uh, whether to forbid in New York uh, congregations in churches of more than 10 persons. And the, 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 the interesting reading, and, and I think that um, um, reading the, the, the decisions of the judges is a very enlightening uh, thing to do when you read about this, these stories, because uh, they write for the people, so they are relatively easy to follow. 
And it's quite fascinating to see the struggles that they have because in a way they say, so religion is important. This is, uh, there is, there is um, uh, freedom of religion is embedded in the constitution. But then the government has also the right to guarantee the health of others. I know that in Canada, this will have gone in the sides of the people because uh, Canada has a system that tends to put the value of society higher than the individual uh, freedoms of people. But in the US, uh, this is the struggle, right? And there's a lot of, the, uh, of division. So if you read the, the decision is 5-4, but if you read the actual uh, uh, writings of, of the judges, I believe that there are seven different uh, dissents. So seven different opinions on why should be one way or the other. So what I'm saying with this is that it's very difficult to really come up with a way to say, this is the way to do it. Uh, the only way that we can say it is, this is what the law tells me that I should do it. Everything else is relative to my own uh, system of beliefs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It also makes me think of what happened during the first Iraq war. Uh, it was the first or the second. I was already a grad, so I was a grad student. And uh, so that was the first Iraq war. I was a grad student and there was there were issues about use of open source software. No, that was the second Iraq war. There were issues of whether to allow open source software, in particular under the GPA license, to be used for, to be used by the military of the United States. Mm. So the question is, if I want to create free software, should I be allowed to restrict the use by some users? And Richard Stallman, which of course, given the research that I do, Richard Stallman is one of the main persons um, in this. So Richard Stallman, for uh, of some of you who might know it, no, might not know it, he's the creator of the Free Software Foundation. He's the, he's, the, he's the original person who said in 1983, we should strive to have a free and open source software, sorry, operating system that people can share without having to pay anybody to do it. And at the time when he did it, he was perceived to be crazy. And I always considered him to be the, the Don Quixote of, of our field. Always, and it's a very strange person. So I don't think that uh, most people will like him as a person, but I think that he has been a tremendous visionary. So when he drafted his GPL, he said that there should not be any restrictions in terms of the use. So the free software says, you should not be able to, to, cons to constrain the, the, the restrictions. And why? It's because it's the same restrictions that we have in freedom of expression. If we restrict it, then somebody has to decide when it's restricted. So you are allowing somebody with a system of values to say, this is the way that it has to be used or it cannot be used. So by removing that, then essentially uh, it becomes more like, here's my software. Anybody can use it for whatever purpose. And I just hope that it's used um, um, uh, for, 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 for good, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that this is a struggle in science through generations. Science can be used for good purposes and bad purposes. Engineering was built by the Romans. And, uh, but engineering was the foundation for their, their strongest army in their time. And uh, so at which point can we actually stop one because of the other, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so the way I see it is that whenever I have agency, I do the best according to my own standard of values. And, uh, and then uh, others will decide on, on whether to use the software that I create or the, the science that I create for good or for bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm starting to divert from your original question. 
And, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good discussion though. But, but, but I think that, so what I, what I find interesting is that uh, with this is that it really goes into my field of, re of, of intellectual property. Yes. Because intellectual property is about uh, uh, copyright and copyright is actually freedom, is, is expression. It's not different from writing a novel or uh, writing, a, 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 um, um, writing music. Uh, the law considers the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there have been cases where uh, where software has actually been perceived as as expression. Mm -hmm. So all the issues of of expression uh, in the law are are very very interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, and then you what you realize is that there's never really a clear good and a clear bad. So I think that with respect to ethical aspects of software, it's more like the color of my actions. This is a, a term very very important in Canadian law: the color of our actions which means that did I act knowing that I was going to create harm? Yeah. If I act knowing that I was going to create harm, then I should be penalized more than if I act without doing that. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to be uh, free to go, right? But the intention matters. And I think that in software, if I know that my software has the potential to affect the lives of people, uh, kill them, then I should actually do more testing that if I'm just creating a library that somebody will use and integrate into their software, and my library might be the one that actually is the, at fault when their software kills the person, right? Uh, but anyway, sorry. I it's okay. No, it's a, it's a great discussion. And I think, you know, we, we talked about perhaps even you talking about intellectual property as the topic for today, um, because, of, you know, there's so many important issues there, but you also raise a lot of important issues in the code review paper. And uh, when we, you know, when people review the code of others, there's also potentially, you know, uh, responsibility there, right? To, to look at more than just, you know, whether there's defects, but also the, the level of care, but also perhaps some of these deeper issues that doesn't, you know, don't necessarily come out. Um, you know, maybe we'll come back to that again later. So um, the students read your paper uh, that you, uh, the, you know, was my contribution reviewed fairly paper where you provide this framework actually to, to think about that, which is super interesting, a very new contribution to our field. And uh, so they have some questions and I, we've grouped them a little bit by theme. Uh, and the first few are about your methods and study findings. So we'll go through a few of those and then we'll probably uh, jump to some of the other themes. Mm -hmm. um, Anthony, uh, did you wanna ask the first question uh, for today? Uh, sure. So uh, I was wondering in your study, how did you control uh, the impact of participants' personalities on their perceived level of fairness of uh, how they were treated? because maybe sensitive people might perceive more unfairness as they were treated? That's a good question. And I think that um, if, you, if you read the you know, threats to validity and also in the introduction, we don't claim that we measure fairness. All that we are interested is to show that some people perceive that they are being treated unfairly. That's our main goal, to show that there's a perception of unfairness on the system. Right. So in that case, then whether the people are more likely to feel uh, treated unfairly or not, um, it's an intrinsic feature of them, but should it matter? Yes. Is it something that we were concerned when we were doing the research? No. In fact, um, from the point of view of the system, it doesn't matter, right? Because what you care is how they feel. And um, so I don't think that um, 
so let me rephrase that. In our paper, we did not have the opportunity to control for many factors. And for that reason, we did not make any assertion about whether the system was fair or not. All that we could say is people feel that they are being treated unfairly. Okay. And I think that from the point of view of doing research, this is a very important question. To which extent can I make a statement based on the data that I have? And some of that has to do with the methodology that you choose. I know some of that has to do with the data that you collect. And um, when we had the first round of reviews of this paper for ICSI, that was one of the concerns of one of the, of, of the uh, reviewers. And uh, that we, so in the, 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 the person believed that we were saying that the system was unfair. So we had to clarify that in the paper and say, no, we're not claiming that the system is unfair. All that we're claiming is that some people feel that they feel that they are being treated unfairly. Thank you. It's a long answer to your question, but basically, no, we didn't really want to go into that direction. Um, it's definitely interesting work, though. Um, and, and, and a few students asked about that. For example, Mimi also kind of wondered if you, you know, took into consideration gender and location and whatnot, but maybe that's something to consider in the future, or maybe there's, has there been follow-up work on that, or? No, I think that is unfortunate, and I think it's just the fact that um, there are type of papers that they are very easy to make, like uh, machine learning papers these days, where you have just data, you analyze the data, and then you find numbers. Those are very easy to produce. These papers are the ones that require a little bit more thinking, a little bit more planning, and what is even worse is that you might do the survey and then find that you don't find the answers that you want. Right. That all, all the data is actually not in the direction you want. And that happened to us in this paper because we did the survey. So a little bit of background in terms of, of, of the paper. So um, in, a, in a conversation many years back, uh, my friends in Spain, um, Gregorio, uh, my co-author, and uh, they were working already with OpenStack. And they were being told that this was an issue. So it's like, we have this, we know that it's happening, let's go and do some research about this. And then at the same time, I had a Japanese uh, PhD student um, in uh, wanted to come for a month to do work on code reviews. And um, so he came and we said, well, there's this, so why don't you work on this? So design some survey that essentially tries to evaluate uh, fairness and uh, in, in, in OpenStack. And, uh, we were amateurs, we're not very good at this. I don't consider myself to be uh, um, the type of researcher that is good at doing uh, these types of papers. And uh, neither Gregorio and uh, is. So uh, we were very amateur. We had survey with the questions that you saw in the paper, and then we got the results back. We didn't, we didn't find anything useful. And so it took us almost six months to be able to, with discussions frequently between his, uh, between Gregorio and I, like talking for hours. Uh, he went to Japan when I was in Japan, we discussed it uh, for days. And then finally we came with some idea in terms of what we could do, which was to say, fairness literature says these things. Let's see where their concerns are with respect to them. So we inverted the problem. It was more like, now that I have the data, what can I say about the data? And um, so I actually really uh, think that Gregorio was the one who was able to get this paper out. I might have written most of it. In fact, we threw away the paper that we had 
submitted already with the original data. It was completely thrown away. It was rewritten from scratch. And, uh, and I think that the, the, the big difference was that then we couldn't really say there is fairness in OpenStack. Right. What we could say is the concerns that the people have regarding fairness can be categorized into all of these buckets. Yeah. And at the end, I think that it ended up being a much better paper. I think that uh, even when I read it, uh, I read it today a little bit. I think that the nice thing about this paper is that no matter what you do, the first three pages are informative. Whether you are a parent, whether you are an instructor, whether you're a paper reviewer, whether you're a police officer, whether you are a judge, uh, whether you are uh, dealing with your employees, uh, a team manager, uh, many of us have to make decisions on behalf of others with respect to evaluating them. So at least this separates the concerns. So I think that at the end, we use the survey as a crutch to really introduce our framework because ICSI would not have accepted this paper without the survey. It would have said, yeah, so what's the evidence that you have for that to be true? Right, right. And uh, so it's, I, 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 I'm talking about, about this from the point of view of a person trying to do research, right? Not from the point of view of the results that we have. And I think that this is a struggle that we have as researchers all the time, that we have these things that we are observing in the world. We know that there is some fairness in open stack but then how can we communicate that in a research manner? And this took us two years to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but at the beginning, OpenStack was very open to the research. And uh, so the community manager uh, gave us the green, the green light. We were able to send the survey through them. And at the end, the, the community manager changed the new community manager didn't care about the results. So they didn't even look into them, right? So it's kind of ironic how things work. Yeah, I think that happens quite a bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Cassie and Alessandro were both sort of wondering about the setting of open source, right? That you kind of studied this within an open source project. Um, do you think there'd be different perceptions of fairness in a company that is not open source? I think that the, the issues, if you look at the answers, I think that there are essentially two types of answers. There are the answers of the people who are trying to belong to the system and the answers of the people who belong to the system. One of the things that, um, so in, in my 20 years as doing papers, well, a little bit more. So when did I start? My first paper was in 95. So that's 25 years of doing papers. And uh, most of those years have concentrated on open source. And my goal has been to try to understand how open source works. What's interesting is that now open source is influencing commercial software development, something that for many years, people thought that it was crazy because we were perceived like, oh, you're, uh, when I say we, because I also do a lot of open source in my own spare time and all of that. It's like, you're crazy and you're kind of a niche. And, uh, and how does this actually affect industry is, 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 is never going to be expected. Now, and, uh, and this is actually uh, something that I, I, I promote in a, in, in a presentation that I, I have given a couple of times is that uh, Linux, for example, is not only um, open source, it's not only the open source project itself, but Linux has impacted software development in two very critical ways. One of them is version control with Git, distributed version control. There were other systems, but Git popularized it. So now people develop similar to the way that Git did it. And the second one is to do code reviews incrementally. 
that was at the same time as Apache, but I think that Linux had this huge, huge impact. So Linux Torvalds will be remembered not only for Linux, but also for the creation of this new style of development, right? And um, so code reviews in industry, when I was at IBM in 95, in 90, sorry, in 2000, they were doing code reviews in the Fagan style where they will get you into a room and you will start to see kind of a movie, the source code, and you say, oh, this looks right, this looks wrong. So it's very boring. And then at some point, then people lost interest and it became ineffective, right? And uh, so now that we see code reviews, uh, they're kind of obvious. It's like, yeah, why didn't we do that? But I think it's also because we have the infrastructure to do it. So now when we are in a company, the big issue is that developers lose, lose agency. And we start to see this in open source too. Developers do the work because they have to do it. And, uh, and because they are going to be evaluated by a manager that will determine their future and the potential salary increases, et cetera, et cetera. So they behave very different. So I think that there are some, some aspects in open source that have to do with this uh, system of, of different entities, different agents that they are all pushing in different directions until it reaches some, 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 some level of, of, um, of equilibrium. Um, in a company, we have the hierarchical structure. If the manager says, this is the code you have to review, you have to review it. So you might actually feel that the system is unfair, not because of the code review, not the code review system, but the company system. So it's a little bit more difficult to separate the issues of the organization from the issues of what you're doing and reviewing at that particular moment. So I think that there's that issue. The uh, newcomers in a company are very different because a newcomer in a company is like, you, we just hire you, you have to work in here. And somebody will review your code, no matter what. Well, in open source is like, oh, I want to participate in Linux. And that happened to me. So, so uh, one of the things that I tend to do to understand the, res the, the research that I do is I put myself as, as an ethnographic uh, researcher. And I, uh, and I do things in open source because I enjoy it, but also because it opens my eyes to the, the challenges, the problems, and potential news research. In fact, that's actually the reason I do uh, research in, in intellectual property, because that was a problem that I faced as a developer. So um, if I'm a new developer, then I don't have any power. I'm actually powerless in the system until somebody inside decides that my contribution is good enough. So the code review system is the one that allows me to create, create within the, the organization. And uh, so it's very, very different. So I think that um, there will be many similarities where, where, uh, where fairness is, is perceivable. Like you can actually see a, a maybe collision between two developers in a company inside and the reviews reflect that, which might, mean, might be no different than when you see in open source two people butting heads and not, not, not be nice to each other reviewing, right? The big difference is in the company, you can go to the manager and look and say, look, this guy's not allowing me to do the work. Well, you can do an open source and say, yeah, so what? I don't like you. <laughs> so I think that that creates a huge difference in terms of how these interpersonal systems occur. And I think that that's why open source will never be reflective of what happens inside a company. Mm -hmm. I posted a, que a question in the chat to see how many of the class participants have made a contribution to open source just kind of out of curiosity. Um, I'm not sure everybody saw it, they're answering. Uh, so you can have a look at that if you like. Um, actually, you kind of touched a little bit on the question that uh, Yiming uh, can ask, which is kind of more speculative. 
Yiming, did you want to ask your question? Yeah. Uh, so I have a question regarding to the research method uh, in this particular paper. Mm -hmm. um, so would you like to use quantitative methods uh, in some aspects, such as um, determining the bias to newcomers by like correlating numbers of pull requests to the proportion of acceptance? Yeah. That was a mistake in the first version of the paper. Oh. So, so our first, because, because that's what we do all the time, right? Oh, so let's go and look at the data. Uh, let's try to see. So, for example, my, my, my view was uh, we can perceive a code review as a queue of reviews and a queue of reviewers, and then try to see whether people skip the queue and try to have some metrics of fairness and then see whether that actually is, is, is true or not. Um, reviewers started to attack that in so many different ways um, that we decided that we could not have a convincing story that said whether there was fairness or not in the system. And that's what we stopped saying there is some fairness in the system. Okay. And, um, but I think that that's essentially, the, so the biggest challenge I find now today with, sorry, with quantitative research methods is the, what I call the Indiana Jones effect. Okay. So um, in the first Indiana Jones movie, he's teaching, remember what he teaches? What he's professor of, Indiana Jones? I know, I know. Archaeology. <laughs> Archaeology. So he's he's an archaeology professor. So he says archaeology is not about truth. If you want to learn about truth, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, go down the hall uh, to the philosophy class. He says that archaeology is about evidence. All I have is some evidence. And then I'm trying to piece it together to try to tell a story. And the more that I do open source, the more that I realize that evidence is completely biased and wrong. So um, the problem I see with a lot of papers today is that the data might say that, but we don't know what really happened in the real world. So for example, uh, think in terms of my pull request, um, the last pull requests I had accepted. And um, a person I have never really uh, communicated with except for uh, this pull request. Uh, and actually code reviews, right? So there were code reviews. So I submitted a pull request around uh, two weeks ago. And then he said, so just I'm, I'm doing some changes. And then he asked me, can you create it again, rebase your changes and send it again? So for example, my first pull request was ignored. No mess, there, there's absolutely no comment on the pull request. And then I close it and I abandon it. And then I submit it again. So the first one has no evidence in terms of what actually happened. So the second one, I rebase it and I submit it and then he starts to make some comments. And then uh, he says, wait a little bit, I'm going to do some um, continuous integration testing. And then he implements that. And then he tells me, uh, just submit it again. And then I discovered that I don't have to create a new pull request. That I can just resubmit my code in the next pull request to GitHub. Sorry, uh, so, uh, so I can, so I have a, to a topic branch. So in topic branch, I can simply uh, push again and I use push force. I never use force in a, in a repository that others have. Essentially what force means is lose the commits that you have 
and replace them with new commits. So the commits that GitHub is going to see, the people who will survey my pull request and, uh, and analyze it in the future, the original ones are lost. Nobody will ever have them. They will only see the last one. So they will never see actually the changes that I submitted. They will also not see the communication that we had in Discord one-to-one -one, with respect to what, what I was doing in the pull requests. Where in the in, in Discord he was being a generic. He said there is this issue here, there is issue there, and I was addressing that. In the other thing that happened is that once he implemented continuous integration testing, I discovered and I, and I have mentioned this to Omar in the past. I didn't have to do the testing. All I have to do is just submit. So I changed my pull request three times because it was failing some of the tests. Because it's cheaper for me to use GitHub than to spend the time creating that infrastructure for me. And um, so was that the way that continuous integration was perceived? Perhaps or not, but I think that the story will tell something very different from what I did. So that's actually my biggest struggle these days with respect to quantitative uh, research, uh, that there are so many threats to validity that we really don't know whether the results that we have are the truth, right? It's more like we hope that to get a, a paper accepted with the results that we have and hope that nobody complains too much about them. Yeah, Thank thanks, Yiming. That was a, a great question yeah, and a good discussion. And, and Daniel, that's sort of been a bit of a theme actually throughout the course is sort of trying to talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, needing to use multiple methods because of the threats to validity um, from any one method, right? You know, just asking people too also has threats. Um, Matt um, has quite an interesting question in terms of uh, your framework. So I'll invite uh, Matt to ask this question. Yeah, um, you mentioned in your paper that uh, fairness is likely to be an issue in other decision-making processes in software engineering. I'm just wondering where, um, what other processes in software engineering you think would benefit from fairness theory in the framework you use? Well, I don't say in a decision process. I say in a decision process that affects somebody. Okay. Okay. So in the case that you're making a decision that will affect positively or negatively a person, you have to think about all these things, okay? Mm -hmm. So the day that you have children, <laughs> you will have to decide procedural fairness. You will have to decide distributive fairness and then apply it accordingly. So in, in software engineering, what are, what are those processes? Well, the typical one is a salary review. That's probably the most important one that everybody will have to go through, but that's not really just a software engineering, that's actually in general, right? Uh, who does what? So how do you determine who, who does certain type of the, of the software? Um, if the system is mission critical, somebody has to stay at, uh, at any time to be able to respond to potential failures, then who is the one who go is going to stay there? So any process that an organization has, not only software engineering, but I think in general, can use the first uh, two pages of the paper, hmm. okay? In right. fact, when you become parents, think about that. For example, let's assume that uh, one of your kids ends in jail and he has to be bailed out and you have to pay the, ba the, the bailing money and then, uh, or you have to pay a fine. Uh, do you give that money to the good, to the good child? So you treat them exactly the same. 
Because you say, I love them the same, I should treat them the same. Or do you say, well, I have to guarantee certain minimum need for them. So I will make sure that both of them have exactly the same level. Or like what Peggy and I, we have discussed is that the process already unfair to begin with. Um, some of us are born in better families than others. Some of us have to work when we are going through university. Some of us might not even have the chance to go to university, right? And um, so the question really is, whenever we have to make a decision, we have to think about these things. And I think that implicitly we do. So I think that you have, you have faced, we have, you probably, all of you have been faced with decisions where you have to decide for one or the other. And you have one way or another, use some of these rules to be able to do it, right? This just kind of makes it a little bit more structured. But do you think, I'll ask a follow-up. Um, well, I'll ask Matt a question. There's no baby yet, right? <laughs> no, but any day. <laughs> any day, right? But I mean, do you think that these, that this framework is something that we should have top of mind or try to sort of train people to use um, for their career, I guess, you know, as a software engineer? I mean, I think what you're saying is that implicitly we we use these things, but should there be more front of mind sort of awareness and mindfulness when we make decisions and think about these different things? You're asking Matt, right? Not me. No, I'm asking you, sorry. Asking you. <laughs> no, so I think that uh, I'm in no position to say, this is what you have to read. All I'm saying is that by reading this, you get a better per perception of what are the many different issues that you have to consider. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes you a more informed person in terms of how you can apply your own ethics, your own uh, state of mind in reaching a solution, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, and I think that, uh, for example, when we do grading, when we are TAs, how, uh, what procedural fairness do we have to guarantee that we grade the same every student? Um, how do we decide, for example, we have the Cal students, the Cal students already have a minimum, minimum need that we have to satisfy and we have to give. We don't even have a word in terms of, of how to do it. It's already given to, to us by the university, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, how do we decide that the student deserves 70 and not 80? Iterate. And, and so a lot of that is, is a, uh, and, and I think that in most cases, and the one that we can apply um, easiest is procedural fairness. Yeah. Because procedural fairness is about saying, if you have to make decisions, just create procedures. Yeah, yeah. And make procedures that have the following characteristics. So you take, you take into consideration bias oppression. You take into consideration the ability to uh, uh, even document the, 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 the process so you can have inf informational um, uh, fairness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. Daniel, um, I'm going to switch topics a little bit. So some of the questions were about more about your opinions about um, certain kinds of interventions for improving code review. And mm -hmm. you've studied code review for a very long time since, you know, uh, I don't know how long ago that was, but with uh, Apache and... Well, I have to say that I have not studied. My students have studied. Well... So, but, but I think that that's actually a very important thing. So we are not, so we supervisors are not necessarily the experts. <laughs> so I have observed code reviews a lot, but I don't consider myself an expert on code reviews. Yeah, yeah, true. But you have, you have some background. Yeah, I have a background. 
and I understand a little bit how they work. Yeah. And I have been subject of many code reviews too. Yes. So from experience. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, would you like to ask your question? Uh, yeah. And it actually, it lines up quite nicely with uh, what you were just talking about, about how, how do professors uh, decide which kind of students get, get grades, you create procedures. So my question is, if code review checklists can improve fairness for the review procedure and improve the average quality of code reviews in general, why are they not so, why are they not more widely used in industry? Um, now, more widely used in industry is coming from my own personal bias. I only have 16 months of experience on three different jobs, but I've never seen a code review checklist except for in this course. So in my limited experience, they don't seem to be used very much, but they seem awesome. So what's up? In my opinion, the most important characteristic, the characteristic of a good software developer is to be lazy. <laughs> the lazy software developers are the best. So there's overhead. And the problem is that reviewers is the bottleneck. And as long as the reviewers is the bottleneck, we will try to minimize the amount of work that the reviewers do. And the way to change that is by convincing management that this is so important that it has to be done, right? Yeah. Um, your um, argument sounds to me as similar as like, well, why should we go through and check every single pipe under everyone's house? We should just fix them when they explode, mm -hmm. which is actually way more expensive than checking the pipes. That's right. So they think that, but the, the problem is that who enacts the, 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 the procedures? Management. Do management understand the value of code reviews? So Linus Torvalds <laughs> Torval says, code reviews have made Linux what it is today. The quality of Linux is fundamentally a result of the level of code reviews that we have and the quality of the code reviews that we have. So I think that it's only when, when, when organizations realize that the quality of the code reviews will facilitate their, will improve the quality of their software. But this also plays with the other constraint, which is we need to develop and finish as soon as possible. So the advantage of Linux is that he doesn't care, he doesn't have a deadline. His deadline is we'll approve whatever, we, we will deploy whatever gets approved during the next code release cycle of three months. There is no feature that I have to finish by then. Well, in traditional software development, we have the customer that is always pushing that, have you finished, have you finished, have you finished, right? And I think that essentially becomes more a managerial problem. And uh, I think the evidence is there, right? And, uh, but also I think that the problem is that, remember in the paper, I, 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 I make explicit that the biggest issue with fairness and when people start to perceive that they're being treated unfairly is what? What happens when people start to feel treated unfairly? Anybody? I, I can jump in, but I don't know. Disengage? Yes, I was just gonna say that. They disengage, they drop, they yeah. quit. Yeah, resentful, yeah. So there is that aspect that in many cases, that's not even an option. Like you're not going to quit if you feel being treated unfairly. 
So until it starts to explode, then people will say, oh, we need to actually do better. But I think that there are two forces here. And, and that's, I think, a very interesting research problem, research question. So are these procedural, procedural fairness pro, uh, procedures necessary to improve the quality of the reviews or to maintain the engagement of people? And potentially, does maintaining the engagement of people improve the quality of the reviews in the long term? Right, because I think that it has both aspects, right? And um, the only feature that I would really, really, really like to have in a code review system like GitHub, the one that would improve things significantly, is to say, was this review done properly? <laughs> so from a scale from one to five, from zero to five, how well did you review this? And currently, we only have accept or reject. And I think that many code that is accepted is not being reviewed. Okay, does that answer your question well enough, uh, Jonathan? Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks. That's a that's a great question. We just have time actually for another couple of short ones, and I'm going to jump down a bit. Uh, I'm going to jump around here a little bit and get Dave if Dave is there. Uh, to ask a question and then we'll have Zane ask one that's a little related to that. Um, I don't see Dave, so I'll just jump in. Um, do you think that fairness in code reviews um, can only reside in anonymity? No, I think that it's, it's, it's not binary. And I think that that is something that I, um, I think that sometimes we see things as either yes or no. I think that if we do anonymous, anonymous code reviews, it will fix some problems, but it will introduce other problems. And we see it with papers, right, Peggy? Yeah. And uh, when we receive anonymous code reviews, some reviewers um, protect within that anonymity. And um, <laughs> But at the same time, we know that the moment that anonymous authors, sorry, that ICSI allowed anonymous authors, that increased the participation of people from, from China and uh, in, in ICSI. That was a very, very big jump that we observed at that moment, right? Yeah. And, um, and other countries too. <clears throat> so it has benefits. I think that the problem is we don't have the research to be able to quantify that benefit. And then what happens in one system might not be universal, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it might actually be more like within our system, will it help or not? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think that the other issue is that I strongly believe that we need distributed fairness equity in code reviews, that not all the patches are created equal and not all maintainers are created equal that if I receive a patch from somebody who I trust heavily, I will review that at a less uh, depth than if I receive that from a person that they just started contributing. Yeah. Okay, yeah, um, sorry, I'm, I'm the one who asked the question. I'm sorry, something happened. So no yeah, like actually, yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> everything is going on. Um, yeah, I'm like I think <laughs> another part of it, you actually answered is that like, do you think that justice or just it's like, it, it correlates to fairness, right? Like it's something, so you actually answer that. And I think this is 
really helpful because I just think that like uh, fairness is something that relates to a social factor instead of like technology factor. Like when we write code, we don't like there's, it's a tool. There's nothing really like fair or just or like ethical about it. Like it's just a bunch of code, but how we use there's things to it and how it's being reviewed. Like how do we take this tool? That's another factor adding to it. So I, the reason I ask this question is because I feel that, you know, like what if nobody knows who you are, you just submit a piece of code and people would rank that as your ability instead of as uh, your background or as how they would perceive you would do or how they perceive a past grievances with you and stuff like that. So that's yeah. why I asked uh, this question. No, I, and I think that that's a very interesting aspect. And I think that unfortunately the research has not picked on, on that because I think that fundamentally, what is the goal of code reviews? Is it to review every patch to the best or to create software that is better? And it's in an, an engineering process, which means that we have an, a limited amount of resources. So should I invest all my time in this patch that comes from a person that I relatively trust or that is touching an area that maybe nobody really uses much, or maybe it's the testing area. So testing, well, if the testing fails, it's testing, who cares? Except the testers, right? And uh, compared to something that you know that is mission critical for the organization, irrespectively of who submits it, right? And uh, so I don't think that we can, we can have very simple rules that guarantee this, because ultimately it's not about that particular unit. That's the difference with ICSI. At ICSI is every paper is important. The goal is the paper. And here is the entire system of the software. And I think that makes things very malleable. And I think it basically means that we cannot have simple rules of saying, yes, 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 no, no, no. It has to be within the context of today, within the part of the system where we are, what should we do? I think we do a little bit of that with uh, Linux, for example, with um, patches that come during the, the, the patch window. So Windows, Windows, Linux has two periods. One of them accepts new features and the other one is just patches. In the patches, the patches are reviewed way more than the code that comes in the new reviews because that's just before the, the, the final release. And then it becomes stringent and stringent as it gets closer to the release date. So there are other factors, right? That they're not intrinsic to the patch that have to do more with the environment, the timing, who is doing it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's going to make it always very difficult. I think that maybe the answer is more like guidelines. Okay. Like if you're an organization that has code reviews, then these are guidelines that reviews should follow. They're not hard rules, but document them because it will be very good to say, oh, this is the reason I didn't, I didn't look very carefully into this because, uh, and also what is the amount of blame that the reviewer should get for a patch that was accepted, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what is the responsibility of the, the reviewer has on that? ICSI, the reviewer has no responsibility. One thing that I would love to see in our papers is that the reviews get published, even anonymously, along with the paper. So people have the context in terms of how people saw th that particular paper and the reasons that they have to accept it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's more about informational uh, fairness, right? Like yeah. this is the reasons that I acted the way I did it. Well, thank you, Dave. Uh, that was a great question and uh, definitely a good discussion. We're gonna have to end there, uh, Daniel. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, this is such an intriguing uh, topic. 
um, that, uh, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, I think, right? Um, I shared the document with you with the other questions. So if you want to add any comments in there to some of the questions we didn't get to, that would be super. Okay. Um, and with that, I, I don't know if there's any comments you want to make before we, uh, before we uh, conclude with thanking you for your visit. My experience with this paper is that, and I think in general, and um, is that it's very easy to write papers. Um, it's very easy to find problems. Well, let me rephrase that. It's very easy to find problems. There are problems everywhere. It's a bit more difficult in terms of creating a story behind the paper that tries to actually sell it, right? And, uh, and one thing that I like is whenever I find it, uh, something interesting is go and learn about that. And I think that with this paper, but I'm so there are two things that make me very happy about this paper, even now that I read it again. One of them is that this paper is useful to almost anybody, irrespectively of who they are. Um, it can be a, a, a brief introduction in terms of all these issues. And I think that this is a paper that can give to anybody who is literate and will be able to understand something about it. And the second one is that it also allowed me to start going into organizational theory. And uh, Irene's work was also heavily into organizational theory. Mm -hmm. And I think that as researchers, I think that the idea is to just be there and just observe and then find things that are that grab your curiosity and then just try to dig in and then see whether you can turn that into a research question that needs to be answered, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, but what I find is that um, if we do it, so in my case, by being inside, I gain insight in terms of what are the challenges and what is research doing different than mm -hmm. what I observe. Mm -hmm. So my career has been built around that. So like looking from the inside, looking at the outside and saying, you outside are wrong. And a lot of the papers are in that direction. Like you probably saw the GitHub paper that we wrote yep. on the perils. That's my way to say to the research world, look, what you're doing is incorrect because the way I see it from the inside. So I, I would say that many of my papers are in that direction too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we've talked about that paper quite a bit. Yeah, so Mike Godfrey told me that every paper has to be a good story. And uh, Peggy's story told me that life is not fair. I will always be treated uh, <laughs> differently than other people. Just get um, used to it. <laughs> My supervisor told me that uh, I always had uh, every story. I, I had a paper that all I had to do was to write. <laughs> and um, but the most important, I think that of all the things I have done to uh, do research, and I was talking to one of my friends earlier today about that, is that by working with people who are better than me, I have become better. So that combination of factors is what has allowed me to be a researcher, right? And whether the research that I do has an impact or not, we don't know, right? Yeah. We just do the best that we can. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think your perils paper and this paper and the work you've done on intellectual property and all of the stuff you've done has already had a lot of impact. So well done on that. We thank should, you. Yeah, thank you so much, Daniel, for coming today and answering uh, all of our questions on this. It's been great to have you here.